0: You're listening to Weird Medicine with Dr. Steve on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com.
1: I've
0: got diphtheria crushing my esophagus. I've got Ebola virus dripping from my nose. I've got the leprosy of the heart valve exacerbating my incredible woes. I want to take my brain out, blast it with the wave, an ultrasonic, echographic, and a pulsating shave. I want a magic pill for my ailments, the health equivalent of Citizen Kane. And if I don't get it now in the tablet, I think I'm doomed, and I'll have to go insane. I want a requiem for my disease, so I'm paging Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve. It's Weird
1: Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of broadcast radio, now a podcast. I'm Dr. Steve. And this is a show for people who would never listen to a medical show on the radio or the Internet. If you've got a question you're embarrassed to take to your regular medical provider, if you can't find an answer anywhere else, give us a call. 347-766-4323. That's 347 Pooh head You're listening to us live. The number is uh, 754-227-3647. Follow us on Twitter at Weird Medicine, at Lady Diagnosis, and at Dr. Scott W. M. And uh, visit our website at drsteve.com for m- podcast, medical news, and stuff you can buy. Or go to our merchandise store at cafepress.com slash weirdmedicine. Most importantly, we are not your medical providers. Take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking it over with your doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, pharmacist, chiropractor, acupuncturist, yoga master, physical therapist, clinical laboratory scientist, registered dietitian, or whatever. Goodness gracious. And later in the, uh, in the show, you're going to hear about our new sponsor. It's Feels, F-E-A-L-S. Go to feels.com fluid for uh, certified potency uh, CBD oil. And, um, you know, Dave C- Cecil's going to help me out with that a little bit uh, later on in the show. Go to stuff.drsteve.com, stuff.drsteve.com for all your Amazon needs Just remember it. And if you're going to go to Amazon, just go to stuff.drsteve.com. You can bookmark it if you want to. Uh, And uh, check out tweakedaudio.com, a Tennessee business in Franklin, Tennessee. Offer code FLUID, F-L-U-I-D, for 33% off your earbud purchase. Best earbuds for the price on the market and the best customer service anywhere. And if you want to lose weight with me, your old pal Dr. Steve, you want to get to your ideal body weight like me for the first time since you were in college, go to noom.drsteve.com. N-O-O-M, That's noom.drsteve.com. You get two weeks free and 20% off if you decide to sign up. It's only a three-month program uh, if you decide to do it. But if not, you get to keep the app and you can use it for logging and stuff like that. There's no points. You do have to log your food, but that's for accountability. That's what gets you in the habit of realizing what you're putting in your mouth. And it's a psychology app. It changes your your relationship with food. Only thing I've had that I've had this much success with this long. So noom.drsteve.com. If you want to do paleo with it or you want to do keto or you want to do Mediterranean, you can do all that. Uh, they're open to just about anything, and there's modules on each one of those things. And, uh, but give it a try. Let me know what you think. And uh, if you want archives of the show, go to premium.drsteve.com and all the instructions are there. And don't forget, Dr. Scott's website at simplyherbals.net. All right, let's get into it. Okay, I'm recording this uh, January 23rd, 2020. If you're listening to this, uh, anytime significantly after that, in other words, if they're replaying this show, uh, some of the things I'm about to say might sound stupid to you because things have happened since then that I can't predict. But anyway, right now we're just in the uh, beginning of a uh, coronavirus emerging, rapidly evolving situation that the CDC is involved in. And uh, the, if look, you can read. CNN and Fox News and all these just go to the CDC website, because that's where they're getting their stories from. And you'll get it straight from the spigot, so to speak. Um, and uh, I'm just thinking of all these fellatio references that I could make, but this is a serious subject. So anyway, just go there and get it straight from the source. Uh, uh, you can search cdc.gov And then just put in uh, coronavirus or just go to the CDC.gov front page. It'll be all over the place. So the uh, CDC is closely monitoring an outbreak of a respiratory illness caused by a novel, which means new, coronavirus named 2019-NCOV. It'll eventually be called Wuhan uh, coronavirus or Wuhan coronavirus. It was first detected in Wuhan City in China. It continues to spread. They feel like they've pinpointed it to a fish market where uh, they had live snakes, I guess. And the snakes uh, have been found to be infected with this. Now, that's the thing with this coronavirus is it generally uh, lives in animal hosts. And then eventually, every once in a while, one or two of them will – evolve to the or mutate to the point where humans can uh, pick them up when that happens they because it's a novel virus we don't have antibodies to it in the in the population so it can spread pretty rapidly particularly if it's easy to spread and that's that's the issue isn't it if i can cough in the air and a hundred people will get it that's a very uh easily um Uh, transmitted disease with a high contagious um, uh, uh, potential. Whereas if I have to have sex with you 20 times and maybe one time out of the 20 or uh, 200, you would actually contract the virus. That's very low contagious value. All right. So a number of countries, including the United States, have been actively screening incoming travelers from Wuhan. And human infections with 2019 NCOV have been confirmed in the following places. Taiwan, Thailand, Japan, South Korea, and then the United States announced their first, uh, our first infection with the 2019 NCOV detected in a traveler returning from Wuhan on January 21st, 2020. So that's the thing. So so you set up this screening. Well, we're just going to screen people from Wuhan. Well, the Chinese government. Appropriately is quarantine Wuhan, but now I mean, what are you going to sc- screen people from Taiwan, who now have gone to England? Now do you because they just went there? I mean, you you end up having to screen everybody. You can see how quickly this thing can spread, particularly in this world where people can you know there's ease of movement. You just hop on a plane, you go somewhere, and you can be patient zero in that area. Um. Chinese health authorities were the first to post the full genome in uh, GenBank, the NA, uh, the National Institutes of Health Genetic Sequence Database. That's a good thing. So they got the virus, they pulled it apart, they sequenced it, and now you can uh, look at the DNA, see what's common with other coronaviruses. Do we have something already that that might match some of these proteins um, in the or, or that would allow us to um, get closer to getting a vaccine or even a treatment for it. I mean, you can treat some viruses, obviously. We've been very successful in treating HIV, which is a retrovirus. Uh, we're decent at treating influenza. We've got a new uh, medication called Zofluzin. I can't remember the, um, the generic name for it. But it's a one-dose wonder, apparently. You catch it within the first 48 hours, take one dose, and it really improves uh, your uh, ability to stay out of the hospital and your ability to not die from influenza. So we're getting there. And a, uh, uh, a universal vaccine for all influenza is on its way. So hopefully that's coming very soon as well. Um, so, coronaviruses are these uh, family of viruses that some cause illness in people, others circulate among animals. Most of them cause, in humans, the common cold. And uh, rarely, they're saying, animal coronaviruses can evolve and, and infect people and then spread between people. And you've seen this already there's this uh, Middle East respiratory syndrome, and then there is uh, SARS which is severe acute respiratory syndrome. these All of these things that you've heard about, um, SARS and MERS. Uh, SARS was first reported in Asia. MERS was uh, reported in the Middle East. And um, uh, all of these things are coronaviruses. And uh, let's see here. Uh, when person-to-person spread has occurred with SARS and MERS, it's thought to have uh, happened via respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs or sneezes, similar to how influenza and other respiratory pathogens spread. Uh, Spread of SARS and MERS between people have generally occurred between close contact. So, you know, close, repeated contact seems to be required. You can't just go into a movie theater, cough once, like in that movie, uh, uh, what was it, Outbreak or something. And, uh, you know, they showed the particle coming out of the guy's mouth was sitting and watching a movie and other people inhaling them and then k- getting the disease. Uh, early on, many of the patients in the outbreak in Wuhan, China, reportedly had some link to a large seafood and animal market suggesting animal-to-person spread. However, growing number of patients reportedly have not had exposure to animal markets suggesting person-to-person spread is occurring. Yeah. So if you saw this disease and every person was associated with that market you would think well maybe it's not able to uh, be transmitted human to human only animal to human and that makes you feel a little bit better uh, because you can uh, sort of nail down the source eradicate that and then you're done But now you start seeing people like these people in Taiwan or other countries that have never been to that market, and it's like, uh uh-oh, they had to have gotten it by um, uh, being exposed to a human being that had it not another animal. Uh, Both MERS and SARS have been known to cause severe illness in people. The situation with regard to uh, this one is still unclear. While severe illness, including illness resulting in a number of deaths, has been reported in China, other patients have had milder illness and been discharged. There are ongoing investigations to learn more. This is a rapidly evolving situation. Information will be updated as it becomes available. So what you're interested in is what are my risks of catching this and uh, what are my risks of dying from it? So uh, the risk assessment by the CDC uh, says that outbreaks of novel virus infections are, are always a public health concern. The risk from these outbreaks depends on characteristics of the virus, as we've already alluded to including whether and how well it spreads between people, the severity of the resulting illness. Well, see, I'm a genius. I've already said all these things. And the medical or other measures available to control the impact of the virus, for example, vaccine treatment or medications. Um, Investigations are ongoing to learn more, but some degree of person-to-person spread of 2019 NCOV is occurring. It's important to note that person-to-person spread can happen on a continuum. Some viruses are highly contagious, like measles, while their viruses are less so well again thank you cdc your old pal dr steve already threw these ideas out let's see here of course i'm just i'm patting myself on the back because uh you know there's nobody else here to do it for me uh, it's not clear yet how easily it spreads from person to person it's important to know this in order to better assess the risk posed. so they're just there's in other words saying we don't know um Uh, The immediate health risk to the general public is considered low at this time. Nevertheless, CDC is taking proactive preparative precautions. Um, They're saying what to expect. More cases are likely to be identified in the coming days. More cases in the United States, given what has occurred previously with MERS and SARS, it's likely that some person-to-person spread will continue to occur. So one of the things that you can look at is how many people have been exposed to it And how many people got it? So if you expose a 1,000 people to this virus and 10 of them get it, then, um, you know, it's a 1% uh, transmission rate. then how many of those people die from that? Well, let's say one of them do. Well, then 10% of the people that get it die, but most people don't get it. So that's one sort of scenario. Another one is a lot of people get it. Say a th- uh, of the 1,900 get it, but only, uh, you know, nine of those die. Well, then again, that's still going to be a uh, 1% uh, uh, death rate. But, um, you know, it's much more transmissible. So you'll see more people uh, dying from that. So we'll see. Uh, right now, it looks like the vast majority of people who got the virus have uh, survived, but there have been some deaths. We don't know what the circumstances were. Were they elderly? Were they sick? Were they young? Would they have bad immune systems? Were there some other uh, uh, factors that were involved? We'll know more as time goes on. For right now, I'm not losing a lot of sleep over this. I'm concerned for the people that have been exposed and uh, uh, to See uh, what the um, mortality is. It's tragic for the people who have died from this. So, um, but uh, keep your fingers crossed that this is something that we can contain very easily. And uh, the the less contagious it is, the easier it will be to uh, contain it. All right. And, oh, the other thing, remember, we've talked about this before. If there is a low asymptomatic carrier rate, so if you have people walking around that don't know they have it, but they're able to transmit it to people, then um, that's going to be a problem because you know it's one person can infect a whole bunch of people before they realize they're sick and then quarantine themselves. Whereas smallpox is a great example of a disease that had a very low asymptomatic carrier rate. So if you were shedding virus, you had smallpox lesions so people could stay away from you. And not only that, the way we eradicated smallpox was we caught every person that had a smallpox outbreak and vaccinated everyone around them. The other fortuitous thing was that the vaccine worked very quickly in that disease. So if you had Joe Blow in some village somewhere who got who came down with smallpox, you'd go to that village vaccinate everyone around him to kind of make a moat around him, make him not leave and uh, vaccinate all these people. And then the virus can't spread. It just has its way with him. He either survives or he doesn't. And uh, then that's the end of it. It doesn't spread to a bunch of other places. So so, um, smallpox had very low asymptomatic carrier rate and a very rapidly acting vaccine. So that was a perfect scenario for eradicating a virus. Measles, kind of the same way. We, uh, I got in. Somebody called me a um, MFing liar on uh, Twitter when I said that we had eradicated measles in this country in the you know in the early two thousands. Because and then they showed me this graph of how many cases there actually were, and so they couldn't have been eradicated. No, we eradicated every single one of those cases came from somewhere else. So there was not a single case of uh, transmission of measles in this country during those times when it was, quote, unquote, eradicated uh, that was native to the United States. Let me me look uh, this up real quick. Uh, Measles, U.S. Let me see when that was. So in uh, 1978, CDC set a goal to eliminate measles from the United States. By 1982, measles was declared eliminated. And that is that, what that means, is, so eliminated is the word that I use, not eradicated. Uh, the absence of a continuous disease transmission for greater than 12 months. In the, uh, and that was in, sorry, in 2000. That was declared, so for a while, there we had no continuous disease transmission for greater than twelve months, so all of the cases that came in uh, were from other places, and uh, they weren't transmitted to other people. Now, I get people and i'm on my now i 'm on my damn soapbox because you guys got me talking about measles, people who will tweet to me and say, "Look at this there's more people." are harmed by the vaccine than are harmed by measles in this country. Therefore, we need to stop vaccinating people. It's like, of course, when you have an effective vaccine and you have a populace that is vaccinated, there's not going to be any disease. So no one's going to be harmed by the disease. And vaccines are not 100% um, uh, safe. Nothing is. And there will be people who will be harmed by the vaccine. No question about that. But if, if you're talking one in a million, whatever the number is, uh, you're talking one in a thousand people died of measles. So do the, the effing math yourself. If we stopped vaccinating people, we'd have one in a thousand people that get measles will die. And my, a lot of those are kids. My uh, friend in kindergarten died from the measles. It was before we had vaccine. I was born early enough that I don't have to worry about measles uh, um, immunity as an adult because I actually got measles when I was a kid. And the measles vaccine didn't come in. I think I was probably, um, well, I was up there in maybe even middle school before the measles vaccine started becoming widely used. So, uh, yeah, don't give me that BS. I mean, it's just, yeah, it looks crazy. Oh, yeah, the vaccine harms way more people than measles does. We didn't have a single case of death from measles in this country. And I'm not 100 percent sure we can say that of the vaccine. And if you vaccinate your kids and they have a catastrophic um, uh, reaction, it's horrible. It's tragic. I totally agree. But by the same token, if you are in your car and you're wearing your seatbelt and you get in a wreck and you get, because of the seatbelt, you get trapped in your car and you die in a flaming ball of fire, uh, that's also tragic. And that's one case where the seatbelt caused injury. But if you didn't wear your seatbelt, and got in that same wreck and there wasn't a fiery ball, but you were thrown from the car, you got a one in two chance of dying, 50% chance. So this is this whole thing about risk mitigation. I know it sucks. It's terrifying. It's like the lottery. But if I gave you the odds of one in a million and sent you to Vegas, you'd bet everything you had on black at the roulette table. So, um, you know, uh, that, that's, just, that's just how it is. So the unvaccinated population. If you're trying to prevent deaths, we have to vaccinate people for measles and other viruses like that. And uh, if uh, and yes, there will be tragic consequences, sadly. But the the infinite, not infinitely more, but uh, orders of magnitude more tragedy if you don't vaccinate. So, um, you know, and think of rabies. When's the last time you uh, worried about a dog being rabid that was running around your neighborhood? When I was a kid before the rabies virus, that was a thing, and it was terrifying. They ran these effing commercials uh, that gave me nightmares about rabies. I was terrified to go outside because maybe a rabid dog would be out there and would come after me. And then the whole Cujo thing uh, didn't help (laughs) (laughs) when it came to – although I think the Cujo, the book, and the movie probably helped um, people to remember to vaccinate their animals. So we just don't see a lot of rabies. It's still out there because foxes and bats will have it and animals will get it. And sometimes when you have an outbreak – In an area among the fox population, they'll throw food out that's laced with the rabies vaccine just to try to uh, settle things down. So, kudos to the uh, veterinarians and uh, uh, wildlife folks out there that take care of things like that. The one vaccine people are, oh, you love all vaccines. No, I don't. There's one that I'm not convinced about yet, and that's the chickenpox vaccine. Chickenpox is usually a self-limited disease. People dying from, po- chick- from chickenpox is rare. Um, and the, But the vaccine is, appears to be very safe. But the issue that I have with this is we're vaccinating people for a disease that is very uh, mild as children and is very serious if you get it as an adult. So if you get it as a kid... The worst thing that can happen to you down the road as far as uh, chickenpox is concerned is you can get shingles, or if you have an immune disorder down the road as an adult, you can get disseminated varicella, which is shingles all over the place, and that's bad. But that's pretty much the worst that can happen to you. If you uh, do not get chickenpox as a kid and you're not immune to it anymore, Uh, Then if you're a pregnant woman and you get chicken pox while you're pregnant, it can have catastrophic effects on the fetus. And as an adult, you can get really sick as shit. So when we vaccinate people to get them to uh, uh, not go through having this meat or chicken pox when they're a kid and we don't know 100 percent whether people um, are going to be have lifelong immunity to that chickenpox virus, what we're doing is we're setting people up to get chickenpox when they're forty, and uh, so, and if um, if we find out they got to get boosters, well, when's the, look at your life? When's the last time you had a tetanus shot? If it's been more than ten years, then you're the person I'm worried about because you're not keeping up with your health maintenance. You need to get a tetanus shot every ten years. No one ever thinks about that vaccine, by the way um and uh so you're the person I'm worried about because you'll you might be 30 40 years old you didn't get your chickenpox booster if we find out that they need one and uh now you're at risk for getting chickenpox as an adult so I'm not a fan of that vaccine until they can show me that you get lifelong immunity or they can implement a program that makes it easy for everybody that's that's uh had the vaccine Uh, to get booster shots and to figure out some way to consistently get everybody to get those so that these adults are not. And I I just don't hear people talking about this one very much. So that's my concern anyway. All right. So I'll keep up on that coronavirus and keep you up on vaccine and uh, virus news as time goes on. Okay. Uh, Let's take a couple of uh, phone calls. First thing. Number one thing. Don't take advice from some asshole on the radio. Thank you, Ronnie Bean. Truer words cannot be said. All right. And if I sound like an idiot today, it's because I'm recording this at 730 in the morning. I'm not awake yet. So I think this would be a good time for a word from our sponsor. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover
0: Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.
1: And you will try
0: to always get it right beauty of life lives inside of you. And I hope someday you find it
1: too. Hey, Dave. Yeah, ma'am. You experience stress? Can happen. Anxiety, chronic pain, like I do. Sometimes. Trouble sleeping at least once a week? Well, you're not alone. A lot of us do. Personally, I think our listeners of this show know that I have... Um, an autoimmune thing called polymyalgia rheumatica. Most of the time, it's 80-year-old women that get it. But you know, your old pal Dr. Steve has it. it causes uh, some pretty severe uh, chronic muscle pain. And I was looking for something that would help. And lo and behold, look what dropped in our lap. Feels F E A L S. Feels is premium CBD. It's cannabidiol delivered directly to your doorstep. Was it due? Wow. It naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness, and um, you know, it's legal. Sounds good. Um, It works on receptors of the brain that most of our medications that we have on the market don't touch. And uh, I took some the other day uh, just to try it. I was feeling kind of crummy in the morning, Mm -hmm. and I took a very low dose of one of their what they call flights where they've got these little vials that you can try. And, man, I'm telling you, I felt like a million bucks all day. Really? No, Not high. None of that. Dude. Felt totally clear, mental clarity, physical, um, you know, the pain was gone. It was insane. It's really easy to take. You put a few drops of feels under your tongue, and uh, you can feel the difference within minutes. Uh, it's so easy to use. You get a little dropper. You get these little vials, and you just put it under your tongue. There are CBD products where you rub them on and things and really you only get about if 10% of it actually ends up in your system that would be a remarkable number so it's usually lower than that I think and uh, so they've decided to go with tinctures only and they use a combination of uh, CBD and uh, uh, MCT oil medium chain triglycerides tasteless odorless and uh, so you get the actually the full flavor of the CBD which I like got kind of a, an earthy, organic flavor that's really quite pleasant, and um, uh, you put it under your tongue, and you get excellent absorption. It's fantastic. If you're new to CBD, offer, uh, Feels offers a free CBD hotline and text message support. Who's doing that? <laughs> to help guide your personal experience, you can feel better naturally. Works naturally to help you feel better. No high, no hangover, no addiction. Uh, you join the Feels community to get Feels delivered to your door every month. It is a subscription-based thing, but you know you can try it. If you don't like it, you cancel it. You save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel anytime. Uh, feels has me feeling my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to Feels F E A L S dot com slash fluid, and you get fifty percent off your first order with free shipping. That's Feels F E A L S dot com slash fluid. Become a member and get 50% off automatically with your first order with free shipping. That's feels.com slash fluid. All right, thank you. Check out feels.com slash fluid, and uh, let's take a few phone calls.
0: What up, retard? you showed showing up on the goddamn Series XM? Fucking goddamn Faction Talk.
1: Okay, good. If you don't like that, you can suck my goddamn cock. <laughs> okay. Hey, go fuck yourself. Oh, Goodbye. I wonder where he was from. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't, okay. I guess we showed up on XM Faction Talk 103. That's where we're supposed to be. 8 p.m. on Saturdays, uh, 5 p.m. on Sundays, and other times at Don Wickland's pleasure. And also... Uh, on iTunes and the internet. Hey, Dr. Steve,
0: this is Calvin from California. Amen. So I have two questions. One, um, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and Narcan, when they're injected into somebody who needs it, are injected into the upper, outer
1: thigh unilaterally. But what do you do if somebody has no thighs? Where do you inject it? Anywhere. Okay, so what he's asking is, uh, like if you're giving someone an epinephrine shot... Uh, an EpiPen for example they have a medical emergency and uh, that they're going to die sometimes or at least have a very serious illness if they don't get that epinephrine right away and uh, what we're treating is a thing called anaphylaxis where that's an immediate type hypersensitivity reaction where someone gets stung by a bee or eats shellfish and now all of a sudden they can't breathe and their airway is swelling up, their lips may be swelling up Uh, they're uh, getting bronchospasm in other words the airways are clamping down and uh, the the most immediate treatment is to give a shot of epinephrine which is adrenaline and it uh, opens those airways up and allows the person to breathe and whenever you do one of those uh, if you have symptoms you need to go straight to the emergency room because it is short-lived and Uh, you may need uh, further treatment or probably will need further treatment. So what he's asking, I'm guessing, is if someone has, uh, you know, had a hemipelvectomy, which is uh, where they no longer have an upper outer thigh. But, you know, it's rare that someone has both upper outer thighs gone. But uh, in a medical emergency, you can just basically give it anywhere where the patient has uh, meat. You can even do it in the deltoid you know if they're going to if the answer is they're going to die if you don't give it you give it anywhere you can get at them same thing is true of narcan narcan is the uh, mu opioid receptor blocker that's given uh either intravenously or subcutaneously under the skin uh to uh or up the nose in the case of the narcan nasal spray you just spray it up someone's nose and it uh, knocks off, it competes for the receptor space with the uh, narcotic that's trying to kill them when they're having an overdose and uh, allows them to live. Again, if you give that in the field, you must transport that person immediately to the hospital because it may only last 10, 15 minutes. You've saved their life, but if you just then walk away and ignore them, if they've got a large enough dose of these uh opioid analgesics in their system, it they'll, the Narcan eventually will just lose its grip on those receptors and the opioid will regain control. And the next thing you know, the patient's comatose again. So uh, you can give it anywhere you want. All right. And then the other one, except in the eye, don't, don't give it in the eye. Thank you. One was um, dealing with Texas Cedar Fever, it's like this uh, pollen dust
0: stuff that gets everywhere. It's really, really irritating. I was taking some Claritin, and the taps are 24 hours, but they're really small. They're little speck things. How can something so small last for
1: 24 hours? If i Yeah, okay. Uh, it's just when you take a medication that's either uh, excreted by the kidneys at some point, uh, in some form, or it hits the liver and is changed, or both. And the, each every chemical reaction has a, uh, a you know a duration, and that's what gives these things their half life is how long that they're, they're in their in your system. So I'm just gonna give you a very simplified answer. So something like loratadine, which is the generic name for claritin that lasts 24 hours, or fexofenadine, which is uh, Allegra, which also lasts for uh, 24 hours when given in a dose of 180 milligrams. Um, basically, uh, that's the, the rate of its degradation. Uh, it takes about 24 hours for it to get out of your system. So it hits the liver. Some things are immediately and mass changed to inactive drugs. So they're very rapidly uh, uh, out of your system. And then other things, uh, they pass through the liver and maybe 5% of it gets changed and the rest of it passes through unmolested. But each time it passes through the liver, 5% degrades. And so you can calculate the rate of change from that. And uh, uh, you know, at some point, you'll clear it all from your uh, system unless it's stored in the fat long term like uh, some medications are like f- fentanyl is fat soluble fentanyl is a very potent uh opioid uh that's causing a lot of mayhem out in the real world mainly because it's so potent it's del- it's uh, dealt in microgram amounts instead of milligram amounts and therefore uh if you've got a dealer who is cutting heroin with fentanyl to make it uh to boost its potency. When they do that, unless they measure that very carefully, they can very easily give the the dose in that packet, um, of, you know, make that dose fatal. And uh, uh, therefore, I, we don't recommend street drug use because if you can't 100% trust your pharmacist to give you exactly what's in the, supposed to be in the bottle, then things happen. And, uh, you know, pharmacists don't start calling saying, I'm trashing you. I'm not. It's I've been to the pharmacy before and gotten, you know, one less pill than was supposed to be in there. Or I've gotten rarely, and this is rare, maybe one or once or twice in my life, gotten something that wasn't supposed to be in there. And if they didn't catch it, I got it home. And then they go, oh, gosh, you know, we made a mistake. Shit can happen. It's as close to perfect as it can be. But even in a perfect situation, when humans are involved, things will happen. So uh, if I can't 100 percent, I can 99.999 percent trust my pharmacist, but it's not 100 percent. I want to always be proactive and look at my pills, make sure I got what I'm supposed to get, et cetera. Uh, And that helps them. Uh, Why would I trust, therefore, somebody on the street that's just going, well, looks like this stuff needs a little bit more fentanyl. I'll just give it a little teaspoonful. You know, you can pack millions of fatal doses of fentanyl into a kilo of fentanyl, which is 2.2 pounds, which is a really small little brick that's easily smuggled into this country, which is why we're seeing more of it. And the ER docs that I talk to at these meetings – Almost universally say everything that they're seeing out there as far as opioid overdoses right now is coming from, you know, illicit fentanyl use. And, uh, you know, a lot of the dealers who are cutting this stuff are not organic chemists, so they may not understand how to even measure out microgram amounts of something. So anyway, um, and so, yeah, that's so that's how this works. Uh, every chemical reaction has a, a rate of change, and loratadine, a little claritin, just has a very slow rate of change compared to some other drugs, like Tylenol, for example. Tylenol is a, every four- to six-hour drug. Claritin's an every 12-hour drug. Transdermal fentanyl is an every three-day drug. But that's because they've manipulated its half-life uh, based on its delivery system. So when you slap... A transdermal fentanyl patch on your skin, it the um, medication sinks into the skin and gets into the bloodstream very slowly, so you have to have a lot of drug on the patch to sort of push that through, and then uh, so it takes 18 hours for a transdermal fentanyl patch to peak, about three to six days for it to hit steady state. So, uh, but they formulated it so you change it every three days, but that's how. So you might. Ask the same question: Uh, How in the world does um, uh, you know a patch last three days? Well, that's how. The other way that you can manipulate the duration of action and, by extension, the half life of medication is to change the rate of absorption of it, and they'll do that with things like oxycodone. So, oxycodone by itself has an unadulterated half life of two to four hours, say, Uh, and it takes about. 20 to 30 minutes to get in your system, and then it's in and out in about four hours. So um, uh, I said half-life, didn't I? meant duration of action. Now, uh, you can change that by putting it in a wax matrix. Put it in wax so that when it hits the, the GI tract, the heat and the fluid in the GI tract sort of leaches the drug out of that wax matrix over, let's say, 12 hours. And now you have a thing called oxycontin, which is just extended release oxycodone. And to you, you can't tell when you take that whether we've reformulated oxycodone so that it's slowly metabolized by the liver or have we put it in a wax matrix and made it just leach out slowly over time. uh, To you, there's no – it's completely transparent which one is which. All right. Hopefully that helps. All right.
0: I don't know if you're able to email me. Oh, what? Okay. Wait a minute. Hey, Dr. Steve. This is uh, Tim uh, in Michigan. I listen to your show on the replay as I don't get a chance to listen to it live uh, because I work. But uh, I have a question on Kratom or Kratom. Uh, I've been on Norco for probably about 15 years now for uh, disc damage in my back and now they basically have turned it into chronic pain uh issue and or that's how they classify it anyway and of course all the problems now trying to get opioids uh with, and with for chronic pain and all this kind of crap um i'm seeing a lot more I'm, I'm, I'm members on some groups on facebook for chronic pain and, and stuff like that and they're all talking about kratom being a pretty decent alternative to narco, to opioids and that kind of stuff, um, I'd love to find an alternative that I could get off this stuff. But I still, you know, have the underlying issues of my back problems, and now because of what I believe is uh, the, the opioids causing all this chronic pain, I'm I'm in serious serious pain. And uh, uh,
1: I got to do something because this isn't okay. good. Yeah, I get it. I get it. No, it's a real problem. And when he says opioids causing pain, you may think he's crazy. But actually, there is this thing called opioid hyperalgesia syndrome that actually, when you, as you take the opioids, you're stimulating these pain receptors and you get an increased amount of pain. And as you increase the pain medication, it actually gets worse. And so the counterintuitive thing when you're in the middle of this is to reduce the dose of the opioid and then magically this actually gets better and maybe even discontinuing them altogether. But uh, because of this sort of political situation in medicine right now where chronic pain patients, are a lot of them feel like they're being looked at as if they're criminals or they're seeking something they shouldn't be seeking, et cetera. And this, a lot of this came from the '80s, when we, when physicians were told that we were under treating pain, and um, so we started treating more pain, and then we had more and more people getting having issues with addiction, and now we're getting dinged saying we caused this this opioid addiction problem, and so there are some docs out there just won't write anything, or they are sl- hacking and slashing at all their patients whether without regard to whether they need the medication and so they're put in a bind and people are getting desperate so they're saying okay i'll get off this stuff but give me an alternative but we don't really have a good alternative or at least we haven't funded one we've we've done a lot about the supply of these medications in other words just cut it to the bone if you look at any graph if you go to drsteve.com. And just search uh, opioid, I've got a graph on there that shows the volume of pills rising at a linear rate until about 2010, and then falling off pretty precipitously at almost the same slope from then on. And then from 2015 to 2016, it drops uh, precipitously again, and I mean really, really rapidly. And at the same time, you see opioid uh, uh, overdoses increasing almost geometrically. And it makes total sense as you supply reduce the uh, supply of the safer alternative, you're increasing the demand for a less safe alternative. We just talked about fentanyl and how easy it is to uh, overdose on that stuff. And these little packets full of white powder don't have the microgram amounts of fentanyl printed on them, so it's very hard to know by just looking at them uh, how potent they are. Well, anyway, so people are desperate. And then they read about this kratom stuff, and they're like, well, maybe I'll try that. And there have been some people that had successes with it, but I don't like this situation where we put people in a situation where now they have to do sort of uh, armchair pharmacology at home without any support from a medical professional that actually knows something about this. And uh, let's talk a little bit about what kratom is. It's a tree. It grows naturally in Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Papua New Guinea. And uh, they've, it's been used as traditional medicine in those areas for ages. It's also now making it out to the real well, – no, I don't want to say out to the real world – to the Western Hemisphere where people are starting to uh, uh, use this stuff as well. And it's not illegal in most places – or a lot of places – Less and less legal. But, um, you know, it's a very interesting molecule that deserves more examination. There's um, some aspect of the kratom, and it could be one molecule or it could be multiple molecules. That's harder to say because it's a plant, right? And so like pot can have multiple uh, active molecules in it. We always concentrate on THC, but there are others like cannabidiol or CBD and lots of other uh, cannabis-related molecules. Well, some parts of the nerve cells, like opioid um, receptors, and then there are uh, other things that act or other either parts of that same molecule or different molecules that act as alkaloids, so they can give you a euphoria or even uh, sort of semi-hallucinations and stuff like that. So very interesting. And there have been some great successes, people saying, look, I got off everything. And then there are other people that I talk to and we've had on this show who have said they switched from, say, oxycodone to kratom, and now they're addicted to kratom. They can't get off of it. And then there are other adverse effects that go along with it. Muscle tremors, itching, sweating, dizziness, dry mouth, seizures, even hallucinations, and even liver damage. So, um, you know, the FDA is saying there's no FDA-approved uses for kratom. That doesn't mean that it has no use. It needs to be further studied. And I know that some of you guys have got to do something, and you're um, um, you're desperate for some relief. Go see an addictionologist if you're having trouble with uh, street drugs or pills, and there are things that they can do to help you with. And I promise you, research is ongoing to try to make this process even easier. And um, I've seen studies where they try to make people go through withdrawal in one day, and what they'll do is they'll give them a general anesthetic so that they're out of it completely and on a, maybe even on a ventilator, and then they saturate their opioid receptors with a, opioid blockers and let them go through withdrawal in a day, and then when they wake up at the end of 24 to 48 hours, they're finished with withdrawal, and the only so the physical dependence is over, and the um, habit and psychological dependence are the only two things that you have to deal with. That makes it a lot easier. Still, it's easy because the habit and the psychological addiction are very, very powerful. If you talk to someone for an hour on a radio show about uh, addiction and they've been off drugs for ages, they can still get triggered by that. So uh, it's very, very powerful, and you have to be vigilant about that all the time. And that's why people continue to go to meetings, even though they maybe they've been sober for uh, for decades. So um, that that's one source of Emerging uh, research. The stuff I've seen so far on that is expensive and it's not been any more effective than other uh, brands of uh, rehab. But I would very much be interested in seeing further research on this topic and it's being funded. So uh, if we can figure out not only a way to deal with the supply, but deal with the demand. Then we may have an answer to this, and then the the chronic pain folks who truly have legit pain can be left alone and let them get their medication without somehow being seen as, uh, as as other, you know, because that's really really irritating. All right. Hey, Doctor Steve, this is Gary um, hey, from Oklahoma, and I got a question about some blood work that I got, and it's actually come up. Uh, past few times that I've done blood work and it's about my Billy Rubin count and doctor came back and gave me call and was like, Hey, you know, we probably need to discuss this, but this is the first doctor that I've been to that actually wanted to uh, discuss it. And yeah. so anyway, uh, let's, so this guy's had an elevated Billy Rubin. Billy Rubin is, um, um, produced by the liver. When you get liver obstruction, like cirrhosis, your bilirubin will go up. When you have an elevated bilirubin, if it's high enough, your skin will turn yellow and the your the whites of your eyes will turn yellow, and that's called jaundice. If it's in the eyes, it's called scleral icterus, and uh, it's a sign of pretty significant liver problems. Now, he, this guy has been, apparently, had a bunch of lab work done in his life, and it's all showed this elevated bilirubin. He's saying this is the first guy that's ever said they want to do anything about it. So that implies to me that other people have seen it and have sort of blown it off. So when you have a sort of chronically elevated, low, very low level of elevated bilirubin, you start thinking about things like Gilbert syndrome. So Gilbert syndrome is very common and very harmless Liver condition where the liver just doesn't process the bilirubin. So we always um, learn. So there's this process called conjugation. And so you conjugate the uh, uh, bilirubin and then you can test these things. It, don't worry about it. It just, it's, that's all sort of doctor speak. But uh, the way I re- remembered, if you're a medical student, Gilbert it starts with a G. So the bilirubin goes right through. And then there's this other thing called Krigler-Najar syndrome where conjugation never starts. So both of those will result in elevated um, bilirubins, but you can do a real simple blood test to differentiate the two of them. Anyway, um, so the liver doesn't properly process the bilirubin, so you get this mildly elevated bilirubin level. And uh, bilirubin is, um, you know, it's produced by breakdown of red blood cells. And if you have Gilbert syndrome, it's also known as constitutional hepatic defunction, and it's also could be called familial non-hemolytic jaundice. You're just born with a condition. You've got this inherited gene mutation, so you're a mutant, and your superpower is you make slightly elevated bilirubin in your bloodstream. I don't know how useful that's going to be. Uh, you may not even know you've got it until you've discovered it like this person did. So, um the uh you know the body normally processes bilirubin. Uh it, it just a yellowish pigment made when your body breaks down old red blood cells. It travels through your bloodstream to the liver where the enzyme breaks down the pigment and removes it from the bloodstream. And then the bilirubin passes from liver to the intestines with uh bile. It's then excreted in the stool. It's a lovely process. And uh you know a little bit will remain in the blood it's detectable in the blood by the way if you want to read along with me this is uh i'm you know one of my favorite websites particularly for this show is mayo clinic because they have excellent expositions on this stuff on just about everything you can think of and it's very well geared toward the lay audience um so anyway uh so how do we diagnose it just through blood test so they'll do um a direct and indirect uh, bilirubin test, and then when they compare the two, they can tell if you have Gilbert syndrome. And, um, you know, usually you don't need to do any other testing other than that, and it's very simple to do. So, yeah, do it, and then you can run around and tell everybody, yeah, I got Gilbert syndrome. You know, feel sorry for me. And you can sort of... uh, uh, use that to your advantage at parties. It's Like, oh yeah, dude, I just found out I have Gilbert syndrome. They'll we oh god, I'm so sorry, so sorry, because they don't know what the hell you're talking about. All right, get that checked out.
0: Hey, Doctor Steve, is it true that when we sneeze that our heart stops beating like for a, a millisecond, and then when
1: people say "God bless you," that's just because uh, the devil can't get a hold of you and damn you eternally. Just wondering. I've heard that ever since uh, I was a kid. Sure. And uh, you probably also heard that you blow your soul out with uh, uh, every sneeze, too. That's why people say, God bless you, or uh when you sneeze. And uh, But there is actually something to this. Your heart doesn't stop, stop in the sense that uh, you have a cardiac arrest, but there's a thing called sternutation, and that's this reflex uh, that's, uh, in, you know, it's a brainstem reflex. And uh when you um, have something that irritates the upper lining in the nose, these nerves carry the signal to the uh, brain stem, it triggers the eyes to close and the chest to contract, and then your lungs expel a burst of air and uh but one thing that doesn't happen is there's any signal to the to the heart to stop so what does happen is when you have this huge increase an intrathoracic pressure. When you, you know, when you get that sort of just right before you sneeze, it's hard for blood to pump into a thorax where the pressure is from the outside is so high at that second. So for that one second, you get an interruption of blood flow. It's not, it's not complete. It just decreases it. And um, when that happens, the, um, uh, your, your, the blood supply coming out of the heart will decrease for a second. Then you may have a com- compensation where it actually increases uh, soon thereafter. So um, if you graft it out, you would see a little dip in blood flow going into the thorax. But other than that, your heart does not stop. Okay, listen, we're out of time. Thanks always go to Dr. Scott, Lady Diagnosis, um, Cliff Andrews. None of whom are here, but I thank them anyway. That's just how magnanimous I, are. I am. I are. That's how magnanimous I are. <sighs> I got to quit recording these at 730 in the morning. I'm sorry. Uh, we can't forget Rob sprance Bob Kelly, Greg Hughes, Anthony Cumia, Jim Norton, Travis Teft, Lewis Johnson, Paul Ofcharsky, Eric Nagel, Roland Campos, Sam Roberts, Pat Duffy, Dennis Falcone, Ron Bennington, and Fez Watley, whose early support of this show has never gone unappreciated. Listen to our Sirius XM show on the Faction Talk channel, Sirius XM 103, Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, On Demand, and other times at Jim McClure's Pleasure. Many thanks go to our listeners whose voicemail and topic ideas make this job very easy. Go to our website at drsteve.com for schedules and podcasts and other crap. Until next time, check your stupid nuts for lumps, quit smoking, get off your asses, and get some exercise. We'll see you in one week for the next edition of Weird Medicine.